So I'd invite you now to uh, grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8. I'm going to bring up Justin Kellum uh, at this point. Uh, I think it's his last official Sunday here before they move to Denver, so I said, hey, I've got one final job for you. So Justin's going to read uh, the word for us, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, verse uh, 22 is where we'll start through verse 39. So would you please stand as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Luke 8, verse 22. Am I going through 39? Yeah. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to, to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the sweet, steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Grassinus asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this gathering of people. Uh, we are here because of the work that you have done in our lives, uh, awakening our dead hearts to behold uh, the glory of Jesus and his work for us. So I just uh, thank you for your church throughout the world. I thank you for even this morning as a reminder with uh, having our friends here from the Czech Republic of the work that you are doing not only here in Fort Collins in this little church, but that you are about gathering a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so I thank you for Tomasz and Nella for their labors, for the work that you're doing in Olomotz, in Mayak, and in the surrounding regions. And I just pray your blessing upon them. I pray that uh, this trip would be uh, uh, helpful for them as they seek to grow and, and learn and uh, uh, just continue to connect uh, with us, with our network, and with uh, the vision that God has set before us to 
uh, continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So I just pray that you would continue to allow the Mayak Network, Metro Church, and all of your people there uh, in that country to be a light that uh, they would be able to uh, engage uh, the lost, engage a nation that has uh, in many ways uh, collectively turned from you. And I just pray that you would, uh, yeah, just uh, bring people to know you uh, through their efforts and their labors. And so I just pray now that as we look into your word that you would uh, awaken our hearts to see things that we haven't, to be able to submit all of our lives uh, to you through this. And so I just pray that you'd use this time to grow us. And uh, it's in the name of Jesus that we come. Amen. You can have a seat. Back in my uh, freshman year of college, I remember experiencing one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Might have been one of, one of the, maybe the only time that I literally believed that I was going to die. Um, uh, if, if you don't know, I uh, went to school in, up in northern Wisconsin at this small uh, college that was actually kind of tucked away in the forest, uh, miles from any town or anything, literally. And uh, so we had to take a lot of uh, small, windy back roads to actually get to campus and to actually get to town anywhere. And so we would often be driving on these roads. And uh, as a 19-year-old, we don't always uh, drive the most carefully, but uh, we, we, we thought we learned how to drive these roads well. Um, it's also northern Wisconsin, so it's the middle of winter. It's very cold, a lot of snow, a lot of ice all over the roads. And so uh, you learned to navigate it as best you could. And so I remember this one night, a buddy of mine, we were driving to town. It was evening, uh, so it was dark out. Roads were covered with ice, and I was probably going a little too fast. Uh, but uh, um, I was driving a, uh, I think it was like a 1995 uh, Ford Aerostar minivan, which it's a really good thing that like my identity isn't attached to any of the vehicles that I've driven over the years, because uh, I've never had like a cool vehicle. Anyway, so college kid driving a, driving a sweet minivan, and... Uh, we were, we were on this final stretch uh, before we got to kind of the main highway, and uh, uh, it was kind of this straightaway, and oftentimes you just kind of go fast just to kind of finish, finish out the drive and get, get to where you wanted to go. And uh, right before the end of that road, before you got to the highway, there were train tracks. And as we're driving on this icy road heading towards there, there was hardly ever any traffic, there was never any train, so oftentimes you just could kind of glance and, and kind of roll through it. Um, but this night... As we're approaching that, uh, those railroad tracks, all of a sudden, I see a light shine directly down the tracks. And I realize I am probably going a little too fast for these roads. So I start hitting the brakes, trying to stop, and it's not really working. I push them harder, and we just start fishtailing and, and sliding all over the place, and I know that there is no way that I am going to stop before I get to these tracks. And I am terrified. My friend with me starts screaming. We don't know whether, you know, whether I should try to put it into the ditch. And it all happened so fast that I kind of just freeze up and lock up. And we're just, we're just along for the ride. There was nothing I could do. And we, we eventually come up and I'm just waiting for something tragic to happen. For my life to literally end. I thought there's no way that this is going to end well. And we get there and we, we, we finally slide to a stop right on the tracks. I, and I turn to my left and I see a snowmobile that is sitting on a trail right next to the tracks waiting for us to come through so he could continue his evening ride. <laughs> I've never felt such relief. And I still to this day 
Would have loved to have gotten out and just known what that guy was thinking when he watched this minivan fishtailing and sliding all over the place for no reason. But in that moment, one thing that was very clear is I, was, I had no control over what was taking place. I, I could not control the van on those roads. I could not control what was taking place. And in that moment, what I believed would happen just filled me with utter fear and terror. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Maybe not in, in, in a physical state of, of maybe dying, but, but just circumstances in your life that you've encountered that just feel completely out of your control. There's nothing you could do about it, that you have no control over it, and you don't know what to expect, and ultimately, it just causes you to fear. And here in this story, we have this classic story in the Gospels of Jesus' disciples in a moment like that. And in these stories, we see this picture, and we're offered this experience of what it looks like to have faith when things are out of our control, and where will we ultimately look uh, for our trust and for our faith. And so today we look at these two stories, two of what are four kind of astounding miracles that close out Luke chapter 8. And so we'll look at just these, these two narratives, the, the calming of the storm in verse 22 to 25, and then the calming of the man in verses 26 to 39. And the narratives that we've been looking at in this section of Luke's gospel focus on Jesus' ministry up in the northern part of Israel surrounding the, the Sea of Galilee. I have a picture of uh, this area, just to, for, for your reference, if you're not familiar with this area. And so uh, we have the Dead Sea down south near Jerusalem, and up north is the Sea of Galilee. And this is the area where much of this part of Jesus' ministry is taking place. And he's been going around to the different villages and areas. He's been spent some time in Capernaum up on the northern side. And uh, this story begins with Jesus and his disciples entering a boat to cross this sea. If we can zoom in on the lake now. It's, uh, it's not a, a, a massive body of water, but it's a good-sized lake, not exactly a sea. It's a, it's, it is a freshwater uh, lake. It's about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide, so not the, not the largest body of water, but, but, a, but a good size. And uh, they are going from uh, probably the area of Capernaum and somewhere around to kind of the southeastern side there across the lake. And so as they embark on this journey, which is going to probably take them a number of hours, uh, what we find is that a, a windstorm suddenly rises up on the waters. Now, just as we in, in, in our location can regularly experience a sudden change of weather as, the, as the, the, the storms roll off of the mountains and the foothills and quickly dump rain or hail or whatever down here, uh, this area has that similar kind of uh, circumstances. So the, the Sea of Galilee is actually 700 feet below sea level, and then there's cliffs and hills that rise quickly uh, above it. And so you get uh, you know, the cooler air from the Mediterranean that'll mix with kind of the desert air from the east and naturally creates uh, sudden storms and, and wind that can, that can change quickly the conditions on the lake. And so this is what the uh, disciples and Jesus experience in this moment. But this is a, a severe storm, so much so that, that the disciples know how bad this is. And if you remember, many of them are seasoned fishermen. They have been on these waters many times. They have fished here regularly. And yet, in this moment, they know that this is not a good situation and that they are in danger. The water begins to fill the boat, come over the sides, and the scene that we get from them is that they are terrified with what is taking place. But as you know, if you're familiar with the story, what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He has fallen asleep as soon as he got on. 
You ask, why is he sleeping? Well, he's really tired. Like, he, this is an aspect of his humanity. Like, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's had crowds of people just wanting him to do stuff for them for days on end. He is tired. And so, he falls asleep in the boat for the journey across. And as the storm comes up, he's still sleeping. <laughs> Sleeps pretty hard. Um, and it, I think there's a sense that we see Jesus almost at peace in this story in contrast to the disciples. The disciples are not at peace. They are terrified. The situation is completely out of their control. There's nothing they can do about these waves and about the wind. And so they, they do turn rightly to the only one who can actually help. And the disciples wake up Jesus, and their words here are, are ones that, that present us with this, this, this mindset of just being frantic. They say, Master, Master, we are going to perish. Literally, we are going to die. Mark, in his gospel, recounts the words in addition, do you care that we are perishing? Do you care that we're going to die? And this is how they wake Jesus up. But Jesus in the story is presented as completely calm and collected. He wakes up from his nap, which, honestly, if we're honest, you've got to have a good reason to wake somebody up from a good nap, right? Like, I, I realize this every week, you know, when I, when I try occasionally to... Uh, Go home after a Sunday, I'm tired, and uh, sit down, watch a little golf, and fall asleep. And inevitably, as soon as I drift off, my, one of my kids comes in, Dad, I need something from you, or, or something goes on. And it's, it's in those moments where my flesh rises up, and almost the most frustration of my kids can occur. But Jesus, I love you guys, actually, by the way, so anyway. Um, but uh, Jesus awakens, doesn't seem, he doesn't present himself as necessarily frustrated in this. But he simply responds with this. He gets up and he rebukes the storm. Almost as if it's personified, as, 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 as alive. And he, and, he, and he rebukes it and he tells it to stop. And instantly, in a moment, the waves calm, the wind is gone, and there's silence and calm on the waters. Can you imagine that scene? You know, we often can experience a quick storm, right? The, the thunderhead rolls over, dumps heavy rain or hail comes down for a minute and then it's gone and sunshine comes out, right? Like we experience that and it can, it can be just a few minutes. That's not what is portrayed here. This is, this is in the midst of, of turmoil and chaos, instant calm is brought onto the waters. And it's, it's in that dead silence that Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this, where is your faith? Those words that just in the same way reach out to us even today. He says to them, where is your faith? And the disciples, what do they do? They actually don't answer Jesus. Instead, they are dumbstruck. They are in awe. It says that in that moment they are afraid. And instead they turn to one another and they simply say, who then is this? Like, like, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Like, who is this? And these stories are, are, are designed and recorded for us to, to remind us of the language and the stories of the Old Testament. You know, passages like Psalm 89 that depict the sovereign control of Yahweh. And Psalm 89 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, 
You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. We're we're meant to understand that in the context of the whole of the Scriptures, the one who made the waves is actually there with them in the boat. And this is such a beloved story because in many ways this is a story that preaches itself. That the offer and the question of this is, is, is held out to us. Where is your faith? Do you believe that Jesus has the power and control over the circumstances of your life and the things that you are facing? That no matter what you are going through, it is not a surprise to God. That He is with you. He is not sleeping in apathetic disregard for your life. You see, what's interesting about this is that the disciples had seen the power of Jesus, right? They had seen Him perform many different miracles. They had, 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 had witnessed the cleansing of the leper. They had seen the paralyzed man get up and walk. They saw the young boy and uh, raised to life. So they knew what Jesus could do. But in this very personal moment, in the moment in which they need Him to rescue them, they begin to question whether He has forgotten them. That maybe He actually won't step in right now and meet them where they're at. Have you ever felt that in your life? Have you ever struggled with a moment like that where maybe you, you believe in what God can do? You have seen Him work in other people's lives. You have seen Him bless that family with another child. You have seen a, a job provided for someone else You have seen a a miraculous healing in the life of someone else, and yet when it comes to you and you look at your life, you actually wonder if God has fallen asleep on you. And here the disciples are are wrestling with what they, they know about Jesus and what they are actually experiencing in this moment in the boat with Him. And so, this is a reminder to us that He is present with us He will preserve us. Do you believe and do you trust that maybe His his intention is not always just to stop the storm, but actually sometimes to carry you through it? And so this story just kind of hangs there with these bewildered disciples questioning, who is this? And the question of where is their faith? The narrative moves on. In verses 26 to 39, we see this calming of the man. The disciples' journey continues to get more interesting from here. I can imagine the rest of that boat ride was just probably spent in reflective silence. And I'm sure that they were glad to to get off those waters and get to the shore. But as they get to the shore, they are met with a pretty interesting welcome. It says that as they arrive there, immediately there meets them a man with a man from the city who had demons. It's like this like dark scene that we, we, we are introduced to here. This is kind of in many ways seen as kind of the, the Halloween scene of, scene of the Gospels. This, this strange territory with these, these demons who are present. And so what we know about this area, it's, uh, provided, it's, it's, it's uh, what Luke describes as the country of the Gerasenes, 
between the Gospels, there's a lot of different place names that are recorded, and it's, it's probably just an instance of different names used to describe different areas at different times. Uh, but this is probably a southeastern area that is specifically a Gentile region. We recognize that from different things within the text, also from what we know of that area. And so he is, again, Jesus is, is, is extending out and, and ministering it beyond the Jewish nation into the area of the Gentiles. And Luke, as, as, as he introduces this man, gives further information on him. This man who has these demons, he not only just uh, acted violently, but he also was one who ran around naked, didn't have any clothes on. He didn't live in a house, but rather in the graveyards, probably caves that were used as burial grounds out in the hills. And the demons would at times kind of manifest themselves in a, in a pronounced way and overtake him and seize him in kind of a, maybe a fit of rage. Um, uh, at different times, the people from the town had, said, had tried to do something about this man. They had tried to uh, subdue him, to tie him down, to lock him up under guard and chain and the demons would, would uh, overcome him with supernatural strength, and he would break the, the chains, and he would run around in the wilderness. This was a terrifying individual. All of the, the people in the city and the surrounding area knew of this man, and they were probably terrified of him. Now we have to at least recognize that in this story, this whole idea of demon possession for some of us can be a really strange thing to kind of wrestle with. What does that even mean? How does that even manifest itself? And we don't have time to, to really dive into this, but what we have to recognize is that the Scriptures affirm and assume the very reality regularly of evil spirits and demonic forces. And so sometimes in our, in, our, in our modern sensibilities, we kind of just kind of tuck that away. It's like, okay, I know it's in the Bible, but I don't know what to do with it, so I just kind of ignore it and pretend like that's not a thing. But the Scriptures present the reality that demons and the influence of these spiritual beings is very real. Now we have to recognize that in light of the, the work of Jesus, the victory over, over darkness has been won and defeated, and therefore those who possess the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit need not fear these things. We can stand confidently under the work and the finished uh, power of Jesus. But as we look at this text, we shouldn't just read this as some kind of undiagnosed form of schizophrenia or something like that and write it off as something else that they just didn't know at the time. This is presented as, as a, a real manifestation of spiritual evil, demonic fallen angels who have possessed this manner and in influencing him in this moment. There's a lot more that can be said, but I want to just stick with the story. As this man meets Jesus, uh, Luke gives us some details that are kind of out of order, and he does this for stylistic reasons. But as soon as they had met, apparently Jesus had commanded the, the evil spirit to come out of him. We had seen, we've seen Jesus at different times exercising demons and, and, and casting them out. And here we have this very personal story of, of this. And so this, this man, under the control of the demons, cries out. He falls down before Jesus, and he screams, and he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? You recognize how he designates Jesus? Do you see the irony here of this crazy naked man properly identifying who Jesus is when just in the last story, the disciples are sitting there saying, who is this? But the demons and Satan, they, they know who Jesus is. They have a full understanding of, of his power and his authority. And so in their interaction, Jesus asks him for his name. And his response is, as 
is well known, legion. This is a term that would designate a large segment of a Roman army. We don't know how many, I don't think it's meant to be a, a specific equivalent, but it tells us many demons had entered him. And what we see about these, these demons in this moment is that they do not try to fight against Jesus or even uh, as, as though they could defeat him. They, from the very get-go, are submissive to him and responding to him, recognizing Jesus' power and Jesus' authority over them. And so they start begging with Jesus. They say, don't torment me. Further, they say, don't send us into the abyss. That sounds terrible. This is a word that would be identifying a concept of the place of the dead or a state of final judgment. The demons knew what ultimately awaits them. As uh, Peter writes in, in his letter later, that if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but he threw them into hell and locked them up in chains of utter darkness to be kept until the judgment, like there, there's an understanding that the, the final judgment does await these beings. And so they are asking Jesus, don't send us there yet. And Jesus, recognizing that, that that's not his time and his purpose right now in this moment, he responds and he says, okay. And then if the story couldn't get any stranger than this, all of a sudden it says this, there was a big herd of pigs nearby. Yeah, pigs. Um, again, a reference that, that identifies this as a Gentile area. So we have unclean spirits, we have a man in unclean areas in, in graveyards, that would be an unclean uh, situation, and now we have unclean animals of pigs. So clearly identifying this, uh, this area that Jesus is entering into. And the demons, they say, send us into the pigs. Now, a lot of people have tried to come up with a reason why they asked to go into the pigs. I don't know. The best I got is that it's better than the abyss. And so Jesus says, that's okay. And so the demons leave the man, they enter the pigs, and as you likely know, this whole herd of pigs violently runs down the hill and is drowned in the sea. And they're gone. Yeah, this is bizarre, right? We can, we can accept that and, and recognize that here. This is a, a crazy story. And some people, you know, criticize Jesus for killing all these pigs, but we have to recognize that Jesus didn't cause the slaughter of the pigs. This was a result of the de demonic forces that have entered them and, and, and caused this destruction. This is a result of evil. And I think uh, the best that I can understand is that this is a picture to us of the destructive effect of evil in the world, just as the demons had, had affected and destroyed this man's life, alienated him from his community and from society, and left him uh, in, a, in a state of lunacy, so too, as they enter into the pigs, they just continue to wreak havoc and destruction. This is their job. This is the, the, this, the, the design of Satan and his demons, is to kill and destroy. But Jesus in this passage is seen as the one who comes to confront the evil. He is there to confront it and to, and to cast it out and nothing can stand before him. And Luke gives us then further information on, on what, how the people then respond to this miraculous event. The owners of the pigs do like any of us would, right? When you see something like this, I've got to go tell somebody. So they go out and they start telling everybody what just happened. Everybody that hears about it says, well, I've got to see this. That can't have happened. So they get together and a whole crowd comes and they gather around to see what took place. And what do they find? Well, other than a whole bunch of pigs missing, they also find this man. This one that they all knew about. They'd, they'd heard the stories of him. They'd probably seen him, maybe had an interaction with him. This crazy man who for years had terrorized the area. They see this guy. There's no doubt. It's, it's the same guy. And what is the description now of him? 
He's sitting with Jesus. He's clothed, which I'm sure they're all happy for at that point. And he is in his right mind. Picture of just this, this complete and utter transformation of his life. And notice specifically their response to Jesus' power and his authority in this moment. It's the same as the disciples back on the boat in verse 25. It tells us they were afraid. You see, what do you expect at this point in the story? This is kind of a classic, you know, fairy tale story of, of you know, a, a, a town who's menaced by, you know, the monster. And this, this strange traveler comes through and, and vanquishes the monster and, and, and frees the city from, from, from his terror. Right? The, the monster's been vanquished. He's been defeated. They should hail their hero at this point. They should invite Jesus into their town to give him a, give him a, a feast and celebrate what has taken place. But no. That's not what it says. It says that all these people were seized with great fear. They all get together. Then they ask Jesus to leave. They say, can you just go away now? Like, what is going on here? Jesus does. He, he responds to them. It's a very short stay, it, it appears. He and his disciples get back in the boat and they decide to leave. But the man who has been healed, he actually wants to follow Jesus now. He has been so radically changed and transformed by this man that he, he wants to follow him. He wants to be with him, be one of his disciples. And Jesus says, no, actually, I have something for you to do. And there's this, this, this beautiful picture here where, in many ways, this is kind of the first Gentile missionary who's sent out to this man. He says, no, actually, go back where you're from. Stay with the people that, that, that you grew up with. And tell them everything that God did for you. And he does. He responds to Jesus. And notice what it, how, it, how it then says it. It says he goes throughout the city telling about the work that Jesus had done in his life. So Jesus says, go tell everybody what God did for you. And he goes and tells everybody what Jesus did for him. Here again, Luke is showing and revealing to us the divine nature of Jesus. So what do we make of these stories? What is their purpose? What is revealed to us here? I want to just close by offering kind of just, just three kind of principles of application for us. Three application thoughts for us as we think about these, these stories. The first is this, that the fear of chaos is only cast out by a proper fear of God. The fear of chaos is only cast out by a proper fear of God. The one thing that clearly connects these stories is the response of those who witnessed them. They were afraid. See, the disciples experienced and they saw the uncontrollable power of the storm. And then when Jesus comes and reveals Himself and His power over the storm, they have a, a new kind of fear that enters them. And they say, who is this man? And the question is, where will this fear ultimately lead them? And the people who witnessed and knew the power of the demons, the powers that controlled this man, then this other one comes who is more powerful than even those things, and their response is, like the disciples, one of fear. They don't know what to do with it, and so they ask him just to leave. 
And when we are confronted with the sheer power, the authority, and the holiness of God, it will produce in us some sense of fear, of reverence. But the question is, what kind of fear will that be? Will it be a fear that actually leads us to faith? Or will it be a fear that says, I don't know what to do with that, and I can't handle that in my life, and I'm going to turn away from it? But the only way that the, the fear from the chaos of the world can be cast out is through a proper fear of the one who ultimately controls it. Application thought number two is this. It's this, who answers where? Who answers where? And what I mean is this, that who Jesus is will determine the answer of where is your faith. Who you believe Jesus to be will determine the answer to where your faith actually lies. The disciples say, who is this man? What what, what do we do with him? But Jesus in these stories reveals himself as the powerful one. The one who has come to confront the chaos and the evil. He is the one who possesses complete authority over all things around us and he actually has the ability to also heal the evil that is within us. And so the question is to all of us, where is your faith? In the midst of the things that you fear and the things that you cannot control, in what do you actually trust? Because if you believe Jesus is just kind of a a, a spiritual example to you, maybe just kind of a a friend along the way, kind of a a spiritual teacher that can give you some some wisdom for your life, but you don't see Him as as, as the authoritative, all-powerful, sovereign God, then when you come to things that you can't control, you can't look to Him to do those things because that's not His job. You ultimately are left looking to your own control, your own efforts, your own power to control the things in your life. And you will always struggle with this aspect of control if you don't correctly answer who Jesus ultimately is. It's easy to have Jesus sleeping in your boat when the sea is calm, but it's when the wind blows that shows whether you actually believe it matters that he's there. If you believe that he is the sovereign one, the one who is in control of all things, all the circumstances of your life, then he is one that you can truly trust. One that you can put everything on. The last application point is this. That Jesus came to calm both the storm and the man. Jesus came to calm both the storm and the man. This man whose life was, was radically transformed from one who was, who was naked in, in an uncontrolled rage who now sits clothed in his right mind before Jesus is a picture of the hope of change that is offered to us when we encounter Jesus. What is offered to us through his gospel. You see, there are a lot of people who want Jesus in the boat with them. Because he can calm the storm. He can, he can maybe take care of the circumstances in my life that I, don't, that I don't like. But they don't want much to do with the Jesus that confronts and deals with evil. Maybe that's getting a little too uncomfortable. Jesus, fix my circumstances, but don't start meddling in my life. But Jesus has come to calm the forces of chaos that we experience all around us in this world. And He's also come to confront the evil within us. The sin that has marked our own hearts. 
And He has ultimately conquered that and, and, and given us the solution for that through His death for us. Through the Gospel of His life lived for us. His death given in our place to overcome all the forces of evil and darkness and to deliver us from the power of sin and Satan and give us life and hope. So what the Apostle Paul knew, as he declared uh, before the Roman authorities when he said and then told them what God had done in his life and how he changed him and how he sent him out to do this. He said to open their eyes, the eyes of the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In 2 Corinthians 4, he said that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Because God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel that is offered to all of us. Will you receive that hope this morning? Will you look to Him, the only one who can actually exercise control over everything that you experience? And when you encounter Jesus and you truly experience His life-changing work, we are left with no other recourse than what this man did at the end of the story. He went around proclaiming everything that Jesus had done for him. Sometimes we get freaked out with evangelism and how hard it is to go out and talk to people or we have to have the right answers and all. And sometimes it's just as simple as this. Say, I don't have all the answers, but, but I can tell you one thing. I can tell you what Jesus has done for me. Let me point you to this one who wants to calm the chaos of your life, the chaos within, and let the light shine out of darkness and let you behold Jesus. So I'd invite all of us in all the things that we can't control in all the circumstances that, that may bring us fear, where will we trust? Do we believe that Jesus both has the power and the presence in our lives to carry us through? And is He one that we will relinquish all control to? Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this text. I thank You for these truths, these familiar stories that as we come back to them again and again, continue to remind us of the things that we so easily forget, that you are with us, even in the moments when we can't always see it, when we question it, when we question and doubt your goodness, you are faithful to be with us and you will carry us through, even if it's through the storm rather than stopping it. I pray that you would strengthen our faith in you, help us to see you more clearly, and help us to cast everything on you and realize that we don't have to have complete control because you are the sovereign over everything. So we thank you, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.